You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. stand for the reading of God's word. So tonight we're going through Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made... So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanging or in exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought, to be, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. If you are visiting with us this evening, I want to introduce myself. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Honored that you've chosen to join us this evening. And we uh, obviously are in a, a very heavy passage tonight, one that requires a lot of care. And uh, we hope to do that with you. Before we jump into that, though, I want to tell you a quick story. On Thursday evening, uh, my family, a few of uh, members of my family and I uh, took a trip to Northwest Arkansas for an event and we were really making great time. We were about a couple hours before we needed to get there and unfortunately as we stopped and we, we went to this little coffee shop and as we came out of the coffee shop, came to the vehicle, we noticed a flat tire. Now, I could have looked at that flat tire and said there is something uh, wrong with the engine of the the vehicle, or I could have said um, there is something wrong here with the I don't know the the brakes of the the vehicle. There's something wrong with the windshield of the vehicle. I could I could have said a uh, many many different things, but what I said was it looks like we have a flat tire. 
And the reason I said it looks like we have a flat tire is because we did. And the reason why I said we had a flat tire is because I knew in order for us to fix the problem, we had to diagnose the problem. If we would have misdiagnosed the problem, we would have fixed something on the car that didn't need to get fixed, and the thing that did need to get fixed would remain unfixed. A person can be the most talented surgeon or mechanic or quarterback or counselor or teacher, but fail miserably without one key skill, the ability to properly diagnose the problem in their lane, right? A surgeon needs to know the physical problem and the location in the body. A mechanic needs to know what part is malfunctioning. A quarterback needs to be able to read the defense. A counselor needs to be able to identify root issues. And a teacher needs to know what hinders their children from learning. A faulty diagnosis will inevitably lead to failure. No matter how good or how smart or how experienced you are, if you get the problem wrong, you will not only be unhelpful, you might actually make things worse. So a right diagnosis of a problem is always critical. Solutions are useless unless you know what the problem, unless it's been diagnosed. The same is true for our spiritual lives. A faulty diagnosis about why you do the things that you do that the Bible calls sin, if we don't diagnose why we do those things, it will lead to frustration. It will lead to hopelessness. It will lead to doubt. It actually can make things worse for you in your spiritual life, in your relationship with God. But a right diagnosis of the problem of your heart, if you can figure what that is, out what that is, it will, in a spiritual sense, get you the help that you need because you've rightly diagnosed what the issue is. Are you with me? We are in a series in the book of Romans. We are looking at the first eight chapters of the book of Romans in a series that we're calling Reign of Grace. We are looking at the glory and the splendor and the beauty and the majesty of the grace of God in the redemption of his people through the work of King Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. And it's through that work that Jesus has done on our part that we can, in an ongoing sense, experience the kingship and the friendship of Jesus in our lives and in this church. Tonight we come to a passage that uh, I think is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It rivals Genesis 1 through 3, Isaiah 61, and it rivals anything in the Gospels. It, because of this reason, it describes for us reality in a way that challenges us and reorients us Again, unlike any other passage, I think, in, in all of the scriptures. And so, as we enter into this very thick and, and, and difficult and challenging passage, I want to invite you to see two things tonight. First is this. Self-worship leads to destruction. Self-worship leads to destruction. And then second, I want to invite you to see that self-worship leads to deception. Self-worship leads to deception. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word, 
a word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it would truly cut to the very heart of who we are, that, that its words and its truth would bring about both conviction and grace to us. Speak through your word to us this evening. We, we open our hearts and our minds to, the, to, Lord, what you want to say to us through your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for the fa- uh, past few weeks, we've been looking at the beginning of Romans. And we've said that Paul, in the beginning of Romans, is laying out for us the theme of Romans. He's trying to give us an idea of what the framework is as we continue to move through the book of Romans. And what we've seen, Paul say, is that there is a righteousness that comes from God through the gospel. We've also seen Paul talk about the relationship between righteousness and faith. And last week, Pastor John showed us how this gospel that, that we receive uh, God's righteousness through is a power that we experience in our own lives and then are led to share with others around us. And as we enter into our pastor, passage today, what Paul begins to do is to talk about why the good news of the gospel is good news by telling us the bad news. Are you with me? All right, so he, he is wanting to talk to us about why all of this is good news by telling us that there's bad news. And honestly, I don't know if I understood this idea um, until probably about 15 years ago in my Christian walk. My understanding of the gospel was, was, was maybe limited to what we would call the good news of the gospel. And, and it is good news. The good news of the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus and what that secured for us. And if I place my faith and trust in him, he's faithful to cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness and redeem me and put me on a path towards growing and sanctification and and, and maturity and spiritual maturity. But really, um, when I first came to know Christ as a little child, um, the message of the gospel was in part, you're a sinner. Right? I, I knew as a little five-year-old boy that I was not able to save myself. How did I know that? Why did I know that? Well, because I was taught and I was also my conscience knew there was something bad inside of me. There was some bad news about me. And if I could say it this way, I, I think even as a young child, I, I knew that the good news could only be good if first there is news that is bad. And, and, and so what's happened in my life as I've continued to walk with the Lord is I've begin to, or begun to understand in, in many different ways the beauty of the gospel the more that I understand the ugliness of my own sin. And one of the things that Paul does here in verses 18 through 32 is he has us face up to the ugliness of our sin for a very specific purpose. And we'll talk about that here a little bit later. But if you would, look with me beginning there in verse 18 again. And as you look there, I want you to notice that Paul begins to unpack this idea 
of the bad news about our condition, about your condition, by talking about one of the most difficult but important truths for us to understand in the scriptures. And it's this, the wrath of God. Now, I want to untangle this term for you real briefly because God's wrath gets a a bad rap. But God's wrath is this. It is his holy offense to the presence of sin. God's wrath is his holy offense to the presence of sin. Right? We need to remember who is God. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and what Paul is beginning to unpack for us here in this passage is that God's wrath is directly connected and linked to his righteousness. See, God would not be righteous if sin against him did not create a divine response. God's wrath is unavoidable because of the unbelief and the rebellion that is in us. And it's this wrath that verse 18 says is against something. If you notice, it says that it's against the ungodly activities and unrighteousness of men. And here we begin to see the first part of our diagnosis. Paul is saying that the problem of humanity is that we are under the wrath of God because of our sin. Paul calls it ungodly activities. He calls it unrighteousness. But just simply put, what what Paul is saying is that the problem of humanity is that we are under the wrath of God because of our actions, our sinful actions. And I want you to also notice a little phrase in verse 18 that says that that this um, wrath is revealed. You see that phrase? And this means that God's wrath against unholiness this is hard for us, I think, maybe to wrap our heads around. Sometimes we think about God's wrath in the past, past tense, but it's actually a present tense action as well for God. God's wrath against unholiness is happening in an ongoing sense. In other words, the brokenness of our sin and its consequences are a form of God's wrath against sin in the here and now. Now, this isn't popular stuff to talk about in the church these days. I understand that. But we would do well to allow Paul to speak truthfully to us about who God is and how God feels about sin. And see, God is not only revealing his righteousness through the gospel, which is going to shine much brighter In our lives, if you're a Christian, that is going to shine much brighter if and when you recognize God's wrath against the brokenness that is in you, right? The more that we grow in our awareness of our sin, the cross in our life actually can be much bigger. And I love how John Piper, author and pastor, once said it. He said, God warns us with his wrath, but he woos us with his mercy. See, mercy says, you can't do this on your own. You can't rescue yourself. You can't save yourself. And whether it's problems or illnesses or suffering or death or, or whatever may come your way, all expressions of his wrath, wrath also say, you can't do any of that on your own. 
God speaks in both languages. He speaks in both the language of wrath and the language of, of mercy. But there's another statement here that's important in verse 18 that we need to understand. When Paul describes the people who are committing these acts, he says they are doing something in particular. They are suppressing something. What does it say they're suppressing? They are suppressing the truth. And Paul is saying they are suppressing the truth because of their unrighteousness. So what does that mean? It means that the truth about who God is is something that you and I refuse to believe in our own sinfulness, in our own flesh. We bury it. We suppress it. And Paul says that the way that we do that is by engaging in acts of unrighteousness. And these acts of unrighteousness, Paul said, actually build upon themselves. They create unbelief about God. And the more that we bury the truth about God, the more that we believe that there aren't consequences for our sin. And for many, it leads them to a place of belief that there actually isn't a God. What is happening in that? A suppression of truth. And Paul doesn't let anyone off the hook for this. Look there at verse 19. Paul tells us that God has revealed himself to the world. Theologians call this general revelation. Here's what that means. It's a, a big theological word. It's just this. The knowledge of God's existence in creation, in the world, his character, his moral law, coming through creation, what we see in God's creation. So here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that we should be able just to look at God's world and see that he created it and in our own conscience know there is a God. He is real. And he deserves a response of some kind from humanity. And Paul presses home this point in verse 20 by showing us how the created world and the character of God are connected. It's, it's in the beauty, it's in the complexity of creation that actually points to a creator. No one is without excuse, Paul says. No one. Now, if you would look with me there at the beginning of verse 21, here we begin to see some more of what the results of this unbelief lead to. First, Paul says it leads to dishonor because humanity has disconnected the gifts that come from the giver from the giver himself. Do you see that? Second, continuing in verse 21, Paul says it leads to doom. Without God is our reference point, we lose our minds. We lose our bearings. Our thinking becomes futile, as the scripture says, or that could, you could synonym for that would be empty or pointless or vain. Third, continuing in verse 21, Paul says that it leads to darkness. We become blind to our, our sin and to the things of God. And lastly, it leads to there in verse 23, what I would call degradation. We start to claim to be wise, and in doing so, in the world's eyes, we become fools by, and this is an important concept that's going to run through so much of the rest of this sermon. There's a, an exchange happening that God, it breaks his heart. We are exchanging the glory of God for lesser things. So, if you put all of that together you can begin to see that our natural condition is an unbelief that leads to self-worship. Worshiping the creation or worshiping the, a creature, ourselves or other people, rather than 
the big C creator. If you boil down every sin that you and I engage in, friends, that's what's underneath it. Paul connects all of these ideas we just talked about in verses 24 and 25, follows it with a therefore, right? When we see the word therefore, we want to ask, what's it there for? And what he does is, in order to answer that question, he introduces a term that shows us what God does in response to human unbelief. And friends, it's a phrase that should make us tremble. It says that God gave them up. Now, we're going to talk about some specific ways that this is true here in just a moment, but I want to just say this is probably the first opportunity in this series that we're going to say something that we're going to return to a lot, and it's this. How do we wrestle with the reality that God gives some people up to their sin and it leads to destruction and leads to an eternity in hell? We are going to spend time in this series wrestling deeply with the mystery of God's sovereignty and providence in salvation and man's responsibility in that as well. The Bible says that all of us are condemned by our sin. None of us deserve mercy. But God in his grace rescues many for his glory. And for those that he doesn't, he gives those people what they want. To be their own God. To be their own Savior. And I've heard the outcry. I've had to answer the outcry that's a very valid question, follow-up to that. And it's this. Isn't that somehow an injustice by a just God? But let's think about this for just a moment. If God gives sinners over to sin and allows them to perish in their sin, is he actually treating them unjustly? Of course not. He is giving them what they want. He is giving them over to what they want. The late pastor and author R.C. Sproul says it this way, one group receives grace, The other receives justice, but no one receives injustice. Here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. Self-worship leads to destruction. See, Paul is actually making the case that you need the gospel because you are constantly worshiping the wrong things. And it's in the gospel that your true worship will reorient your heart towards what actually brings satisfaction and pleasure and comfort all the things that you're searching for. Paul is saying that when we begin to worship ourselves, we are actually not experiencing the freedom that we think we are. We're actually on a trajectory towards destruction. Now, we don't think of it this way um, because we don't think of sin uh, in a, in a, um, in a, in sort of like a, a trajectory kind of way. It's more of these, you know, we sin and we, we mess up and maybe we're convicted of that and we pray and we ask God to repent for us. But it's, it's, it's more of this, uh, a moment in time kind of approach to sin. But Paul is trying to say, actually sin 
if we don't respond to what the Lord is trying to do in his convicting work in our lives, when he makes us aware of that, we are actually on a road towards destruction. Um, Because here's what is underneath that self-destruction. An unbelief in God. Your exchange of the truth about God for a lie, God knows that's not good for you. He loves you too much to not come along you, aside of you and say, hey, this isn't okay. But it's not just him saying, this is not okay. He's saying, here is the way out. I want to give you the thing that you're actually looking for in this other thing. But many times we fail to see that the self-destructive patterns in our life are an expression of a worship problem. Self-worship leads to destruction. Now, if you would look with me at the beginning of verse 24, uh, here we begin to move into a part of our passage uh, that we are going to see more specifically the ways that verses 18 through 23 plays itself out. I just need to say, by way of, of introduction, we could spend weeks on just this passage alone. Um, really, this whole section could have been many, many weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about some things here in a moment that um, in, in just due to time, because of the brevity in which I need to present it, by no means do I uh, mean to somehow communicate that it's not important or it's not something that requires maybe even more conversation. But because of, just want to honor your time this evening, we are going to talk about some, some stuff that um, deals with sexuality here in the next few moments. We're going to keep it uh, PG-13, but I, I promise that uh, um, we, we need to jump into some of this a little bit so that we can understand what Paul is trying to say to us about self-worship, actually. Now, if you're new today, like I said earlier, you need to know that we're in the middle of a study of Romans. This is just a part of our journey through the book, and maybe you remember what you heard Ashlyn read a while ago, and you may feel uneasy about some of these verses because you are presently struggling with same-sex attraction. Or you have someone close to you who identifies himself or herself in that lifestyle. You may be even here today convinced that that is okay, like it's appropriate and good to engage in that. Here's what I hope to do in this section. Again, it's it's going to be brief, but I want to briefly help us see, help us all see, that Paul is saying that our sin and our brokenness affects us all, including our sexuality. So we just said that God does give people over to their sin, and so what Paul begins to do here in these verses is talk about the effects of this exchange of created things for the Creator. And if you would look with me, beginning there in verse 24, first, the expression of God's judgment is to allow the lusts of our hearts to be expressed in impurity. That's what, those are Paul's words there. Now when you see the word lust in this passage, uh, you just need to know that, that Paul uses this in other places in the Bible as a blanket term for all sexual sin. So though we're going to talk about some particular kinds of sexual sin here in a moment, Paul is actually saying on the outset here that, that um, any, <clears throat> excuse me, any sort of, of sexual sin that deviates from God's plan is sexual sin. 
And, and, and it's an exchange of God's glory for our own. Now, I want to jump ahead for just a second. If you would look with me at the beginning there of verse 28. And it's really, we see the second effect of the exchange of God's glory for a lie. The previous effect was connected to lust and to sexual sin. Here the issue is a depraved mind and a laundry list of evil. I don't know if you felt this as Ashlyn was reading it, but it was overwhelming, right? And you probably felt like, I can't get out from underneath that. I, I feel that. It's likely because there were 21 sins listed there. And you probably, like I felt like, yes, yep, yep, right? You, you could claim I'm guilty of many of those. And the long list actually isn't comprehensive. But it is meant to show us how pervasive sin is. None of us is exempt, is Paul's point. And then in verse 32, Paul says that our minds are so warped by our rebellion that we not only do things that we know are wrong, but then we turn around and we actually cheer one another on in our sinfulness. So sin, many times we think, is just as the individual, individual rebellion. But for many of us, individual rebellion is not enough. We try to aggressively persuade others to drink the same potion of self-worship that we've drank. Now, if you would, though, look with me back at verses 26 and 27. This is the third effect of this exchange that we see. And again, as we move in to this, I hope that by now you can see what Paul is getting ready to say here in the context of this entire passage. Verse 26 says that another expression of God giving up those who exchanged created things for their creator were given over to dishonorable passions. Now, this phrase is connected to what we read in verse 24 when Paul said that we dishonor our bodies in this exchange as well. So here's what Paul is trying to say to us. The failure to honor God leads to a dishonoring of the body and to a dishonorable, uh, to dishonorable passions. Or to say it another way, God gives them up to their desires, desires that are not a part of God's design. They are contrary to his plan, to his nature. So here's what Paul is getting at. God's plan for sexuality was to be expressed exclusively in a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman in a marriage covenant. God, in the very beginning, creates man, creates woman. He brings them together. He gives them to each other. He commands them to fill the earth. God actually designed their, their passions and their sexuality to be a part of the fulfillment of his design. But in, the, in a context, in a very specific context, between a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. The expression of sexuality in the covenant relationship that began with Adam and Eve would both affirm God's design and fulfill his command. So when Paul says here that he is giving men over to dishonorable passions, he is saying what they are doing is against God's nature. He is referring to the very essence of God's design and the first of God's commands in the Bible. So here's Paul's very specific word here in verse 27. 
Homosexuality runs contrary to the basic design of God and to his first command. Our culture has disconnected sexuality from the creation command, and we have mostly made sexuality to be about what we want and, and what we desire. Sexuality is deeply personal. That's why it's a hard subject to talk about, honestly. And because it's deeply personal, it's deeply powerful, right? Paul here, though, is, is trying to say to us and remind us, God designed it that way. God designed it to be deeply personal. He designed it to be deeply powerful, but in a particular context. And Paul's point in highlighting homosexuality is not to say this is the worst sexual sin of all of them, but to demonstrate the depth of our brokenness and how it reaches into all of our most intimate desires. Here's the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. And this is what Paul is trying to say to us is about this passage. Self-worship leads to deception. And friends, we should all be mindful in this moment. All of us have an orientation towards aspects of this exchange for the glory of God with the glory of man. The brokenness of, of our world has gotten all the way down into the very fabric of our being, even our sexuality. And no one is exempt. No one is immune. Your issue, your challenge with the issue of sexuality may not be a, a, a fight and a wrestling with same-sex attraction. It could be an issue with uh, pornography. It could be an issue of an emotional affair that you're having with someone who's not your spouse. The list of sexual sins aren't uh, to be sort of pressed down into one category here tonight, homosexuality, but rather to say that you and I are living in a world and are susceptible to the way that the world teaches us that it's okay to say, you know what? My sexuality is the most important thing about me. The brokenness of our world has gotten down into the very fabric of our, our beings, friends. Remember that list of of the, the list of sins we just looked at, 21 items long. Here is why Paul tells us the story of this tragic exchange and all the ways in which we work against his design. It's so that your need for the gospel is crystal clear. We said earlier that we need to know the bad news about us so that we know what the good news actually is, so we can actually experience the good news of the gospel. Paul is diagnosing the problem of our hearts so that you and I will see how desperate we are for God to rescue us from ourselves. We need Jesus to transform our motivations, our desires, our thinking, our actions, all the way down to the most personal thing about us. Our sexuality is very personal, even that area of our lives. And the good news of the gospel is that is what is possible through a personal relationship with Jesus. When we allow Jesus to transform us in this way, here's what begins to happen. Um, last night, the elders and our wives got together just for a little hangout, and we were reflecting on the last 10 years, and one of the topics that came up was this idea. When we allow Jesus to transform us in this way, we become a church filled with people who are openly struggling, 
honestly, like people know the struggle and fighting, we're fighting together with all of the issues that Romans 1 says is true about us. We are bringing things into the light, out of the darkness, in the hopes that the Lord would be so gracious to transform us in community. And I'm sure for some of you, you may have not always felt like the church, church was a safe place to be honest and a safe place to get help. And I know some of that has to be earned. I get that too. I just want you to know what our desire is as a, as a church, what our aspirations are. We want to be a church that extends love and grace and truth to you. We, we want to be, we want to come alongside you, whatever the struggle may be, to help you. Because here's the truth. Every one of us is broken in some way. Underneath it all, we are battling the same issue, our willful exchange of God's glory for our own. It just presents itself in different ways, right? Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 is in the Bible, not just to depress us, not to just like crush us under the weight of the, the bad news, but rather to diagnose what is wrong with us to help us see the need we have for the gospel. There are some of you here today who are looking at your life and you would say, Brad, I, I'm being described here in Romans 1. I'm, I'm in need of Jesus. And by the way, that's true whether you know Jesus already or you've walked with Jesus for a long time. This is why the gospel is such good news. By realizing our problem, by admitting our problem, we can put our faith in the work of Jesus on our behalf. We can come to terms with the fact that we need a change so fundamental, so deep, so transformative that only God can do it. See, the problem is our sin is so destructive and so deceptive that it takes the power of God to eclipse it in our lives. And without it, friends, we are without hope. But the purpose and the point of what Paul is trying to say to us is that, that you are not without hope. This is the reality. This is the diagnosis. But here's the cure. The cure is Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can and continue to save us from ourselves. Romans 1 helps us to see that. That both in our own power, the bad news is that we cannot save ourselves. But the good news is that through Jesus, we can be saved from ourselves and redeemed from our sin. I am so grateful for the good news of the gospel. I'm thankful for a clear diagnosis, but even more so, I'm thankful that there is a cure and that the cure is Jesus. Let's pray together.